Hello and welcome to Softcast Explain It podcast series. We are now at episode nine of series five, and we are certainly nearing a full series count. Nine episodes in and a few more to go, I promise. This season, we've aimed to provide content continuity and with it, some fantastic quality. And today is no different as we move into the tail end of the year. My name is Dean Gardner, Softcats Field Chief Technology Officer, and we're here to explain it. Every episode, our team of experts are here to talk tech in simple, jargon-free language. Over the course of this series, we'll be discussing new trends and ideas, as well as solutions to everyday problems in this fascinating and ever-changing world of tech. So the key is in the title. And on that note, I will introduce today's topic, an edge towards cloud. It sounds dramatic. And to share insights and answers, let me introduce one of our residents, Adam Luca, Softcat's Chief Technologist for Security, and our very special guest, a warm welcome to author, engineer, and currently CTO at Cloudflare, John Graham Cumming. Thank you for joining me today. So John, can you provide your definition of what an edge location is? So actually, no. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Um, I think that term is super confusing. When you talk about edge you're naturally trying to contrast it with not edge, right? So there's some sense that there is an edge and there is not. And I think maybe that made sense five years ago. But the reality is that the internet is everywhere. And that means that applications, contents, the stuff you're looking at, the stuff you're interacting with needs to be everywhere. So although it's quite trendy to talk about edge, um, when I think about Cloudflare and I think about the sorts of services we provide, the idea is that you shouldn't really need to know where they are. They're just somewhere inside the internet and we make sure they're in the right place so you get high performance and um, a secure, safe experience. But on that note, that's in your world, that's Cloudflare's world, but is, do you recognize or do you agree or not agree that organizations that are building locations or edge locations, they're not always going to be reliant on using someone who does it for them, but they're doing that themselves. And is that the same sort of thing that you're describing or is that different? Well, it depends what we're talking about with edge. So if you think about um, the mobile telephone operators, the 5G networks, they have a concept of edge, which is, again, in contrast to how they used to do things, which was the internet was kind of a go through a trombone somewhere and you went back to your home country when you were roaming, for example, and now they're putting functionality inside the network. So from their perspective, it's the edge. And you see some other providers saying this, we're an edge compute platform or something. I think the way to think about it is if you're building something, you're presumably building it not because it's an edge, but because of some purpose, which is, I want it to be near the user. I want to have high performance. I want to have it be, it be scalable. Um, and some people might call those things edge, and that's fine. I, I more think of it as this is just simply the future. That's quite interesting, John. Are you? I guess are you trying to really say it sits closer to almost it's it's distributed. It it's about locating the service, the compute, the whatever we're looking to achieve in the most appropriate place for the the user or machine or application that's accessing that that function so it's almost it's like dropping something into the into the mist of the internet and actually then allowing the system as a whole to define where it is the most appropriate to process or deliver that service from 
Well, I think that's right. And, uh, you know, it's really the mirror image of how we all behave on the Internet, which is that, you know, you get out your mobile phone and you just expect the Internet to not only be available, uh, but to work with high performance. And, you know, we have come to expect the Internet to be everywhere, sort of in the ether. Um, And the way to achieve that is partly through all those cool technologies like 5G and uh, fiber optics and all this kind of stuff, but also making sure that the applications you're interacting with are close to the user. And that is sort of what Edge is trying to capture. Um, I just think that it's difficult to capture that when really everybody needs their own little edge, right? Because they're moving around and you need the application to be close to you. Um, And so that means that the number of locations where you might have something edgy uh, is in fact huge. Yeah, it's it's not as simple as a a couple of edges. It's it's an edge that follows you and that edge changes fundamentally based upon who you are and what you're accessing and where you're accessing it from, I guess. Well, yeah. And if you think about, you know, for example, you suppose that I interact with, I'm in Lisbon right now, suppose I interact with some application on the internet that I'm using for something and I get on a plane and I fly to London. And when I get to London, the ideal scenario would be that the data for the application that's about me moves to London or moves to some location close to me. So I get this incredibly high performance. Um, And equally, the other promise of the edge is not just that the applications and data are close to the end user, uh, but also that the, um, the performance of these things scales at internet scale, right? So that you can, uh, you know, you can truly add, you know, an application and have it scale up to no matter where the users are. So you get both the locality, you know, close to the user and also the very, very large scaling possibility. So are we moving to a world, and let's think about futures a little bit, where you've, I think you said it earlier, John, it's invisible. You expect it to be on. You expect to be able to access those things. And if you're an organization and a business, does it matter what you're investing in, in terms of infrastructure? Does it matter where your infrastructure sits? Is it getting to the point where you just give a device to a user, you provide these applications, and at that point, you just need to secure, connect, or, or even just secure it to ensure that data and apps are secure and it kind of everything else is invisible. And at that point, is there a reliance on an IT function of the future or are you just going to be taking it all as something that's just there and available provided by someone as a service? Well, so I think as, as users, just taking ourselves outside the workplace for a moment, um, we have all got really used to high performance internet wherever we want it to be. And that could be, when I say high performance, it could be streaming, you know, a football match on your phone, on the bus, going somewhere. But it could also be highly, something highly interactive. So maybe waiting for a taxi to turn up where there's real time updates on the location of the taxi. It can be anything that requires a back and forth to the server. So we've got used to that in our private lives. And I think all of us, fundamentally think we can get our phone out and get anything and it'll be fast and when it isn't we have this kind of oh it's not working very well it's kind of slow and we actually naturally shy away from things that are slower than things that are fast so i think there's a natural training of the humans around the world based on their phones and based on the cloud and SaaS applications when we get to the office, we sometimes have the opposite experience, where suddenly it's like, why is this all clunky and slow? And I can only do it here. And there's all these kind of things. Um, the reason for that is twofold. One is that, first of all, some of those architectures are old. And there's an idea that being in the office is significant. Um, 
And the other one is that, you know, it takes time to migrate this stuff to faster and more modern uh, infrastructure or architectures. And so you've got to remember that the enterprise, you know, when you talk about IT departments, they have a very important job to do, which is securing the applications that users use, securing the data that is in those applications, which is fundamentally going to be data about us as individuals often, if it's a consumer-facing company. And so I don't think the IT department magically disappears because of cloud or edge or SaaS or any of these kind of things, um, but it changes what it's doing, and it changes from a network security perspective as well. Um, so I think it's still there, but I think that the world in which we live in outside work has invaded work. And we expect to be able to get to stuff at work, to our applications from anywhere with high performance and without huge security barriers being put up. And I guess the the more that we can adopt distributed um, models gives us, I guess, greater resiliency to changes and impacts within geopolitics or potentially where data is stored and processed you know do you think that the kind of taking that distributed model allows us more flexibility and control around maybe how data is treated in in different uh different countries in different environments and to your point allows us to have data sovereignty where actually data is only stored in in a certain distributed location but the logic of an application can sit above that without needing to move data forward and back between those different nodes or different distributed environments well, I think this is a really interesting point, which is that when you think about the challenges for the internet and business over the next you know, two to five years, it's, it's going to be all about data privacy and complying with different laws in different countries and in different uh, businesses, right? So if you're in a in healthcare, you'll probably have different privacy laws than if you're you know, selling online dolls or something. Um, there'll be different regimes and it'd be different depending on the country. And so... If you think about one of the ways in which applications grew so rapidly over the in, on the internet was there was the ability to move data around, uh, particularly towards the US, but also in general, without thinking too deeply about this, or there was an umbrella of laws that helped. I think the reality is that every country is going to legislate something to do with their uh, their citizens' privacy if they haven't already done it, and it will be up to companies to figure out how to comply with them. And I think one of the advantages of the types of architecture, the serverless architecture that, that Cloudflare has and others, is that you can slice it in essentially arbitrary ways and say, okay, I've got this application, but the data, because this user is, you know, I'll give you an example. You're, you're a German citizen in Germany. You book an appointment with your doctor on the lot online you fly to South America on holiday and you think I'm going to stay in South America for an extra week. I'm going to delay that doctor's appointment and you go online. Now, suddenly you're in South America and you're no longer physically inside Germany and you're dealing with healthcare data. Um, even if it's just an appointment, it's still healthcare information that you wanted to see a doctor. And so how the network decides how the encryption happens, where decryption happens, and presumably it would happen only inside Germany, um, and where the data is stored, probably only inside Germany, um, is, is critical to the application and it'll be part of the application design. But the nice thing about these networks is you, you don't have to lose all of the power of the network just because your data needs to be in one location. So for that German user, security things could still happen in, let's say, Buenos Aires to make sure that there's not a DDoS happening against the service there to make sure this is a genuine user. But all of the encryption and all of the data storage could be happening inside Germany. So I think... 
this architecture by its very sort of software nature and sort of huge number of locations and and no sense that there are regions here right so if you think about if you use a classic cloud provider you decide i'm going to keep my data in us east or bahrain or whatever suddenly that goes and you just say no no i'm going to build an application at internet scale oh and by the way users who are like this that data can only be stored in germany for example or brazil uh, so i think this is if this is going to be a very flexible way to build applications because they'll scale while also complying with privacy laws around the world yeah, that, just uh, zooming in on a, a point you made there, John, as you were speaking, you were talking about a kind of encryption and decryption points and something that um, it's funny in security, we sort of simultaneously love and hate encryption with equal measure, you know, love it for the privacy and protection it gives us for confidentiality of data, but but also hate it because malicious actors and uh, malicious individuals utilize encryption to to hide their nefarious actions fundamentally. Yeah. And um to your point, it just kind of sort of sparks interesting thought in my head that actually something like decryption or TLS interception or or um, or inspection of network traffic for the purpose of security could get you in hot water when it comes to where you are performing that decryption and actually thinking about you know if you're a global organization you know where do you store that data where do you intercept it where is appropriate to do that based upon the rights of every one of your employees which could be in a each could be in its own country fundamentally yes give your employees and also your your customers right depending yeah. on where they are and just to give you to go back to my example of the german who wants to stay longer in buenos aires and change his doctor's appointment um you know the way we handle that is that there's no decryption happening outside germany which means the sorts of uh, protections that require decryption the web application firewall and stuff like that only happen inside germany uh, but things like DDoS mitigation, which happen at the network level, can be done outside of Germany. So you can, there's a lot of flexibility here, and you can still use the power of a really large network like that while guarding people's privacy. So, John, Adam, we hear a lot about in our in our world distributed data centers, distributed networks, distributed. What you're describing, from what I can understand, is you're talking about distributed data. And is it a distributed data conversation more than it is an infrastructure or a connectivity conversation? Because what you also, I think what you described is that everything's going to be connected. The internet is freely available and going forward, I'd assume that would be more so than it probably was, you know, last year. So are we talking about a distributed data architecture strategy focus for, for, for not only the user, but for an organization or a business? Well, I think there's a couple of things, right? One is the is the connectivity side of it, which is like, okay, well, this user is connected here. How do they get to my application? And that might require interesting networking things that we would take care of uh, to deal with, you know, bad weather on the internet route it this way rather than that way in order to get the performance to be good, right? And all that sort of thing. And then, yes, there's where the data is. Um, I think the important thing is what we want to do is provide the tools that let someone essentially label parts of their data and say, okay, this, this has to be handled in this particular way, this particular location, um, without that having to be something somebody has to themselves manage in their schema, for example. I think that sort of fundamentally is where with these types of applications, these types of platforms we're, you know, that we've been building need to go. And I guess, interestingly, Dean, to, to just um, pick up on a point you made there, you know, I think the assumption is the internet will become 
more pervasive and more open. But actually, when we look at it, is is that really true? You know, actually, are we going to see less freedom online and, and fundamentally more controlled access? And, and actually, as um, countries start to filter and block access to certain sites or potentially try and take sites down that are seen as dissidents or, or, or uh, demonstrating opposing views, actually, the internet potentially isn't going not going to get any more open if anything it's going to get less open as as we move forward and 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 services and and organizations who protect those types of organizations are really important you know that that free speech angle well yeah except of course i think that we already live in that world where governments block the internet i mean um and and not just sort of the obvious governments like you might say well it's obvious that the iranians block the internet because they don't want information about the protests happening getting out or it's obvious that Russia might because they want to filter information about what's happening with the war in Ukraine. But the, I think the most common sort of blocking is actually nothing to do with governments like that. It's to do with copyright owners going after things. I mean, if you think about the UK, uh, if you get, if you have a normal ISP in the UK and you try to go to the Pirate Bay or one of the other places you can search for content, it turns out that it's blocked. Um, now it's been done through the courts. It's been done not necessarily been the sort of draconian way in which you know those other governments I mentioned operate. But the internet is not uh, a complete free for all, uh, and there you know, governments around the world do control and manage you know what people have access to. So this is just a reality of where we are, um, and so we shouldn't be surprised. I think by that, and I think when we're thinking about companies, companies are figuring out how they need to comply with different sorts of just regulations around the world just around internet you know use and in particular privacy for citizens i think that's a, that's a big area of focus even if you exclude the draconian blocking of the internet or even the the slightly crazy blocking of the internet that some countries do when it's uh, exam time where they don't want people to cheat so they shut the internet off in the entire country wow i didn't know that one is uh, where's that so it's not uncommon in some parts of asia to block the internet for certain times of day in certain regions when exams are happening. It's, it's quite common in some African countries, both North African and Sub-Saharan, uh, to the point where some countries will actually announce a schedule for when the internet will be turned off, uh, which coincides with the exam times. So there's all sorts of um, reasons why uh, the internet gets tampered with by governments. And frankly, we shouldn't really be surprised. I mean, governments are governments. I mean, <laughs> the internet isn't isn't supranational, right? It's not taking away the power of governments. Um, so we shouldn't be surprised that governments are going to do things with it. Yeah, John, I've got a I've got a one year old son, so I might uh, clip your soundbite for when he's a little bit older, explaining why the internet's gone down, and I'll use you to say um, it's definitely go. the government who's taken it's it definitely out. Definitely the government, yeah. Well, no, it's <laughs> definitely the government. I mean, yeah. George, when you think about the privacy of individuals, I mean, governments are really responding to protection of their own citizens. You know, think about GDPR, and you think about other laws around the world: Brazil, India, Singapore, China. I mean, everyone's doing it. Everyone's getting into this. It's um, it is interesting. I was kind of looking at. I guess Cloudflare does so many different things and is often exploring new ideas and new uh, new propositions. And interesting to see you again moving into sort of Web three and and decentralized applications and providing services in that space. Is is that something that excites you, or do you think that's a uh, a flash in the pan? Do you think it's definitely not a flash in the pan because it's a flash that's been going on for years at this point. <laughs> so the the real question is, you know, whether there's a really deep something there. I mean, Cloudflare got involved in 
let's say blockchain so that, that was where we began and then let's call it web3 whatever we decide to put under the umbrella of web3 um some years ago because we wanted to you know we really believe as an organization that we need to try and use technologies and have experience with them ourselves to be able to you know give anybody any advice about them i think the issue with web3 has been that despite kind of years of work on it i don't think there is beyond cryptocurrencies really an application where suddenly everyone's like oh yes that's the web three application like if you think about web two where the web became super interactive suddenly it was like whoa i can have my email in a web browser and it's a super interactive thing and you know all that web two stuff really you know, it was no longer kind of catalog sites so they were super interactive um i'm not sure web three has had that web two moment um but we continue to work on it because there's a lot of work and there's a lot of fundamental technologies there and we're interested to see to where it goes. But it's not a, wow, it's going to change the world today kind of situation. Yeah, for sure. I'll, um, I'll put my Bored Ape collection away for my uh, my NFTs and go back uh, go back into my corner. Um, but yeah, thank you, John. That was really interesting. Um, yeah, that, that is interesting. So, I mean, we're, we're seeing a lot more conversations, I would say, around things like metaverse and those kind of virtual worlds and but i wouldn't say we're, we're i don't think we're actively seeing we're seeing elements and pockets of that those kind of developments do you think that is going to explode or do you think that will um create more potential opportunity in that space areas like or the concept of the metaverse I mean, i'm sure there's something in the metaverse i mean second life was already a metaverse right i mean and and you know people were using it and obviously we've got better uh, technology for being more immersive um, i have a couple of the oculus devices and you know they do give you a pretty amazing experience they're also very tiring to wear for any length of time um, and a little bit disorienting so i think that from a technology perspective there's still a long way to go before we feel uh, fully comfortable immersed in it and obviously there are lots of problems with people feeling dizzy and things like that which need to not be ignored so i don't know that the the metaverse is about to explode this year or, or next year i think there's still significant first technology problems and also um there are you know acceptability problems like this is is this a good way to do things i've actually done some one-on-ones at work um through metaverse and it's fine and it's a nice alternative to Zoom calls or Meet calls or Teams calls or whatever technology we're using today for calls because I find them kind of tiring after a while. But I'm actually kind of looking forward to what I would call the the Meetverse, which is the when we go and meet other humans, um, <laughs> not the Metaverse. Um, because, you know, after being at home with COVID so long, it's actually, you know, it's amazing how nice it is to actually see other people in real in real life. It's a, it's a really valid point because there seems to be this acceleration to build more tech, more tech, layer more tech, layer more tech, but but forgetting about ultimately the, the, the common theme, which is human interaction and actually getting in front of each other and talking about stuff. That's kind of, you know, it's been, we've been doing it for quite a few hundred years or a thousand years and, and it, seems to, it seems to have worked okay. So yeah, getting more into this immersed world, I'm not sure if that's a, as positive or a negative or technology for the, the sake of technology, more of a statement and an, an opinion from what you're saying. Well, I don't know what you think, but I, you know, I had 
because of Cloudflare's history, I was the only employee in London for a while and everyone else was in San Francisco. And I used to fly out to San Francisco quite a lot. And one of the things that really struck me was it was enough that I had met a person once in the real world that later my interactions with them via chat or video or whatever were better. And so there's some magic happens when you meet other humans in person. Maybe just you find out how tall they are or something, but somehow we're wired for that. And so I think that the meeting people verse is still pretty important. Yeah, that's a, a valid point. Something I want to pick up from what you said earlier. Do you think we're going to get to a point where we're going to have internet blackouts, you know, where there's a potential emergency or something where you mentioned it, governments have turned off for various reasons, the internet in certain countries. Do you think that that, that source of behavior potentially could be more widespread? Because in, in the UK and certainly I would say, you know, the US and other countries, that's not something that would be surely considered. But do you think we could get to a point where threats or there's certain elements perceived threats from other parties where governments and the UK government could just turn it off for a period of time. Is there a risk there, do you think? I mean, I'd be pretty surprised if the UK government decided the internet was going to be turned off. I mean, in part just because um, the internet is so useful for everybody, including the government, right? Um, and I actually think, I, su I suspect that one of the reasons why the internet has continued to work so well in Ukraine uh, despite what's been happening, is the combination of the heroic efforts on people to fix broken fibers and stuff like that. And also, frankly, that I suspect that the Russians themselves find the internet pretty useful. Um, and so I, I think that we are so enmeshed with the internet that asking if we're going to, if, you know, a government like in the UK would actually decide to switch off the internet would be similar to, are they going to switch off the electricity? So I think it's unlikely. I mean, I think in order for the internet to go off in, in the UK, you'd probably be in a situation where you'd have to be, you know, serious power outages happened, which affected the infrastructure so much or multiple fiber cuts because, you know, there's so much connectivity. So, but I think it's pretty unlikely. John, just asking you taking it in a slightly different direction. What, what kind of excites you about the next few years in technology? Is, is there some one thing that you're, you're passionate about or you, you think is exciting, either from a technology development perspective or, or more generally the society and the sits around tech, really? So I don't know if it's I'm getting older and therefore I'm less, you know, like, oh, wow, shiny thing. Uh, if there's like a sort of natural thing. But I find myself actively choosing between a sort of tech-mediated experience and a non-tech experience. And I think there's something in this about deciding what is technology-based and what isn't. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, I recently had to make a decision between whether in a house to have a very fancy computerized system that will control the lights or physical light switches with copper wires that go to the light bulbs. And I decided the copper wires rather than the fancy computer control because there are downsides to computer control of things right and you i could just see myself in the future having to debug the thing reboot it update it wonder why one light doesn't work and things like that and so i think when you think about technology you have to make a kind of clear-eyed sort of view of it it's not just because you added technology to it that it's better 
Um, sometimes it's true. And you have to sort of decide, okay, this is where I think technology will make a really big difference. In terms of things I get excited about, I mean, I think I am particularly interested in this idea of sort of quiet technology or uh, ambient technology, which is technological things that fit into our lives without without demanding our attention. So, for example, some years ago, I made a thing that's by the front door here in my place, which tells me the weather so I can know whether it's going to rain outside or not, in particular, um, using just some little colored lights. It doesn't demand attention. If you glance over it, you instantly get the answer. And I think that as a design idea of things that aren't you know, part of our lives but don't demand our attention is a really interesting way to use technology. And I hope that that uh, becomes something. And I think it's possible, given that microcontrollers and processors are exceedingly cheap, so you can afford to have a little thing that just tells you whether it's going to rain or not um, and not be limited to one massive computer doing everything. So that's an area that I think is, is really worth spending time on. And probably if I wasn't at Cloudflare, I'd go and spend time on that. That's a really interesting article that the idea that somebody who spends their life in technology and you know is a is a technologist actually realizing the the balance I guess there and and seeing the beauty in in things that are almost monofunctions so singular kind of functions rather than you know I've got you know my phone here that does a, a million different things but but actually as you say constantly demands those CPU cycles from you in, in terms of attention. So that's a, a really interesting idea. And I guess almost comes back a little bit to where we started the conversation about decentralization and, and actually trying to simplify things rather than, you know, rather than having a big sort of central bundle of complexity, actually, how can we make things elegantly by focusing on the, the individual functions of something and placing them where they're most appropriate, but almost as silently in the background, at least to the users. Yeah, I mean, uh, to give you the perhaps a slightly extreme example of this, I don't have any electronics in my bedroom, um, and not because I'm like scared of waves or something <laughs> like that, um, but because they're an incredible distraction. And I actually have a a Casio alarm clock that I think I've owned for thirty five years, and I think I've probably changed the battery three times or something. I mean, it's so so efficient, and you know, I. That's it. And I think it is important to kind of make distinctions of where the technology is helping you and where it's where it's you know distracting you. And certainly going to sleep, I'm I like going to sleep. Okay. Yeah. So I, I think we're gonna round it off, I think, there. We started at Edge and we ended up at Casio. I love that. A Casio, <laughs> is it an edge device? I mean, I don't know, it's a an analog edge device. There we send it with that. But so uh, John, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today. Fascinating stuff. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for joining us today. And please remember, we've got a range of episodes covering a whole host of different topics um, on top of today's episode. Please leave us a five-star review on your platform of choice. We'll see you soon.